Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. As Pastor Ben mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are starting a new sermon series this fall. This fall we'll be looking at Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. And so we will begin this morning with the first 14 verses of chapter 1. Please give your full attention to the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I came across this week a poem that was written by Helen Keller, a remarkable person if you know Helen Keller's history, but not a Christian. She uh, actually was part of the Swedenborgian cult And so some of her writings reflect a lack of a full Christian theology. And a poem, this poem that I came across certainly has truth, but it lacks the whole truth. First of all, she says something that I will disagree with strongly in a moment. She says, first of all, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. To keep our faces toward change and behave like free spirits in the presence of fate is strength undefeatable. In other words... Stop seeking unattainable security and live boldly. That's the only way to have an important life. 
Well, first of all, what I agree with Helen Keller about is that it is true that you cannot live your life in fear. Successful people are confident people. Successful people are secure people. Successful people are willing to take reasonable risks. But the real question is, what is the basis of your confidence? Is security real? She says it's a superstition and it does not exist. And really, isn't that what your life is as you think about your plans for today, tomorrow, and for your future? Isn't life a search for security? To find a place where you feel safe, accepted, loved? But you quickly find out in life, if you haven't already, that you're never going to find security. When she says that security is a superstition, she's wrong. But she is right that it doesn't exist in nature. It does not exist in this world. You cannot find your ultimate security, your foundational security in the relationships in your life. They will let you down. You cannot find your security in your bank account or your career. You cannot find your ultimate security in the relationships and the surroundings of your life, the circumstances around you. But true, deep security and confidence is not a superstition. It does exist, but it's not in nature, and it's not in us. It's not in this world. Ephesians 1 is given to us to show us the basis for true, lasting security and confidence in life. What Ephesians 1 is going to show us is that your security is based in a plan. A plan behind all of human history which includes every detail of your life. Ephesians 1 is about the true meaning of life. Isn't that what human beings ultimately want? What is the meaning of life? Where do we find our security? Paul makes a, the Apostle Paul makes an audacious statement in verse 9. He says that in his writing of Ephesians 1, the first chapter in this epistle, God is, quote, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Wow, what a claim that Paul is making about what he is writing. I'm about to reveal to you this great mystery of what God is doing in the world. I'm about to reveal to you the narrative, the story that ties all of history together, and I'm going to show you how you fit into that. That's what Ephesians 1 is, and so we tread on holy ground when we try to understand it. Earlier this summer, if you were with us, we had a series of sermons on covenants, the covenants of Scripture, and showed how each one of those covenants were actually part of one covenant, the covenant of grace, that ties all of Scripture together. All the way from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about God's covenant of grace with his people. It's a commitment that God made to save his people. And that commitment is what ties every part of Scripture together. The covenant of grace is that narrative, that story 
behind all of human history. And if you understand the covenant of grace as the word of God portrays it, then you will understand all of history. Not just the past, not just the present, but even the future. Well, that's what Ephesians 1 is about. What a great follow-up to a series of sermons on the covenant of grace to have Paul spell it out in clear detail here in Ephesians 1. Paul reveals to us the plan of God that drives human history and how that plan of God should give us an invincible, unshakable sense of security and confidence no matter what our circumstances may be. Like most of Paul's letters, the book of Ephesians is divided into two parts. Matter of fact, Ephesians is divided almost equally into two parts. First, he's going to tell us deep, profound theological truth. And then in the second part of the book, he's going to teach us how that truth should change our lives. How then should you live in light of what is true? And so we're beginning in chapter 1 with a theology. As a matter of fact, the theology of chapters 1 through 3, it's almost, you want to call it doxology, because it's hard to read, especially chapter 1, When you get to verse 14 or when you get to the end of the chapter, you just want to break out in a song of praise because it's such an amazing truth, deep and profound truth. How you should live in light of the truth of God's plan is going to be the secret to you living with a consistent, day in, day out, unshakable sense of security and confidence in life. So what's the source of the confidence and security? Well, Paul's short answer is God. But that's a little abstract. He wants to dig into it. And boy, does he dig into it in Ephesians chapter 1. What's interesting is you look at Ephesians chapter 1, you can see that finding your security and finding your confidence in God is something that most religions would say. Probably every religion would say that at some level. But Paul makes clear here, he's not just talking about some vague, undefined idea of God as some being out there. He's talking about the God of the scriptures because he tells us that this is the God of of the covenants. This is Yahweh. This is God who reveals himself to be one God in three persons. And every one of the persons in the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each one of those persons has a crucial role to play in carrying out this plan to save his people. He's going to tell us what God has done in the past to give us security and confidence. He's going to tell us what Christ has done in the past and the present to bring us security and confidence. He's going to tell us what the Holy Spirit does in the present and guarantees for us for the future so that you can live with that kind of confidence and not live in fear no matter what your circumstances are in this life. So let's first of all look at what Paul says here about our security and confidence in relation to God the Father. Our security and confidence is based upon the Father's will. The Father's will. That's what he says in verses 3 to 5. Look look there again. He says, And God the Father, the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. There's so much truth in those couple of verses. And so we're going to break it down with just three simple questions to see why this should give you a deep sense of security. First of all, who made the ultimate choice for you to be saved? Who made the ultimate choice in your salvation? The answer is clear in verse 3. God the Father made the ultimate choice. Now, I want to be really clear here. When, if you're a Christian, if you've truly given your life to Christ and you're a Christian, then there is at some point in your life where you chose to repent of your sin and turn to Christ and believe in him and follow him. And that was a real choice based on real desires and real thoughts and real attitudes of your heart. It was a real choice. Well, but Paul is revealing a mystery here. In some sense, it's, he's revealing something for us to know, but it's something that's beyond our comprehension. That somehow behind that choice that we made at some point in the history of our lives, God's choice made it happen. God is the one who ultimately chose us to be saved. And that's good news. If I want to feel secure, if I want to feel safe, if I want to feel accepted, if I want to feel loved, then it's important for me to know that my future destiny has been predestined. That God made the choice that's going to determine where I'm going to spend eternity. Because if it was based upon my choice, I'd be scared to death. If God made my choice the ultimate choice and whether I'd be saved or not, then maybe I was okay 30 years ago, maybe I was okay yesterday, maybe I'm okay today because I'm still choosing that same thing, but what about tomorrow? What about next week, next year, 10 years, 20 years from now? What if I choose differently, if my choice is the ultimate choice, and that's the basis of my hope and confidence? You're going to face tragedy. You're going to face national, or, you know, natural disasters. You're going to face death of a loved one. You're going to face broken relationships, deep hurt and pain in this life. How do you know that you're going to continue to choose to follow Christ, continue to trust in Christ? Ultimately, it's because God chose you, not because of the choice you made to follow Christ. That is where your security lies. How do you know that when persecution truly comes, and those days are likely coming, how do you know that when somebody puts a, puts a gun to your head and said, deny Christ and live, how do you know that you're going to choose to follow Christ in that moment? Your confidence had better be, your security had better be in a choice that God made to save you. The second question you ask in this passage, in verses 3 to 5, the second question is, when did God choose to save you? The, ver the answer is in verse 4, before the foundation of the world. Now, God is outside of time, but he communicates to us in the only way we can, I can't, you know, I can't comprehend what it means to be outside of time. Everything in my life is sequential in moments. And so he's communicating this truth to us in a, time, in a way that we understand that his choice of us 
was made before the world was created. Not only before you were made, not only before you were born, but this choice of you was made before the world was created. That means that nothing that has happened in history, nothing that is happening in the present, or nothing that will happen in the future could ever alter or affect God's choice of you. It was already made before he created the world. In Romans 9, and if you haven't really studied Romans 9, that was the chapter that really opened my eyes to see the depth of what God did to save me and his sovereignty in the whole process. But in Romans 9, he uses an example from Israel's history. He uses God's choice of Jacob over Esau. And he says that when that choice take place, took place, they were not yet born, this is quoting from Romans 9, they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad when God chose to, to save Jacob, not Esau. And so he chose Jacob over Esau before they were born in order that God's purpose in, of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. Not because of anything in us, but because of him who called us before the foundation of the world. And then thirdly, the third question is, how did God make this choice? On what did he base his choice? And that's an important question. Verse 5, he predestined us according to the purpose of his will. That's the simple answer. Now I'm going to tell you right now, that's not a satisfying answer to our logic. But that is the answer that Paul gives. On what did he base his choice of you to save you? On the basis of his sovereign will alone. He didn't choose you because of your good looks. He didn't choose you because of your ethnicity. He didn't choose you because of some future choice that you would make for him. He didn't choose you because of church attendance. He chose you based upon his sovereign will. Paul really stresses that in this passage. Now, I have to address the fact that some Christians say, no, when it talks about predestination and, and foreknowledge and election and in Scripture, what it's saying is it's just that God, before the world was created, he, he, being God, he can obviously see the future. He knows the future. So he's able to look down through the, the halls of the future and see that someday Dan Keel, or Joe Schmo is going to believe in Jesus, and based on the fact that Dan is going to choose to follow Jesus, I'm going to choose him. And that's what he bases his choice of those who will be saved. It's based on a foreknowing or, or predicting by his perfect uh, knowledge of the future who is going to choose to follow him. But that's not a real choice. That makes my choice a real choice. It makes, again, puts it back on salvation being based ultimately on my choice, because God only chose me because I first chose him, but is that what Scripture teaches? Scripture teaches that we choose him because he first chose us. He has to take away a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh before that heart of flesh has the ability, the desire to choose to follow Christ, to serve God, to be saved. Paul goes out of his way to make this point in verse 11. 
He's already said this, but he repeats it just so that make sure that we get the point. In verse 11, he says, Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, he's relating God's sovereign purpose, God's sovereign will in choosing to save his people. He's relating it to his sovereignty over everything. And Christians will often talk about how God is sovereign over everything. Yeah, I mean... We, why pray if we don't believe that God is sovereign? I mean, God is sovereign over the natural disasters. God is sovereign over raising up kings and casting down kings. God is sovereign over the economy. God is sovereign over our illnesses. We believe in God's sovereignty, but then somehow Christians want to stop when it comes to our salvation and say, oh, he's he's sovereign over everything but saving you. And I'm here to tell you, that's what you're going to see as we continue through Ephesians 1, is that His whole plan is centered around saving you. Why would the most important thing in his plan, the very center of his plan, be something that he's not in control of? He is sovereign over all things, especially our salvation. This is the God that we read about back in Isaiah 46 when we had our responsive reading. He says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And in Romans 9, again, going back to Romans 9, Paul applies this to the central work of God, the center of the plan of God in saving his people, And he says in Romans 9, verses 15 and 16, quoting what he had said earlier to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, and the it there in context is referring to salvation. So then salvation, it, salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, again, let me stress, if this is a teaching that's new to you, if you've not seen this in Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 or Romans 8, everywhere else you want to look for it, I understand this is going to really mess with your mind. I understand this is a difficult concept. Matter of fact, it's impossible to get your head around the idea of election. And yet, you know, the Bible teaches both. It's equally true. We are Free agents, in the sense we make choices, they're real choices, based on our desires and our will. But somehow, because God is so much bigger and transcendent and so much beyond what we can comprehend, he somehow incorporates our decisions, our choices, and our actions into his meticulous plan for every event, every moment of history, especially when it comes to our salvation. And that is not given to make you intellectually curious that truth is not given to perplex you that truth is given to comfort you you will never fully comprehend it but if you bow a knee to scripture and bow a knee to the lord and accept it as truth it will give you a deep security because the ultimate choice that has brought about your salvation is not your choice it's god's choice and god's will will not be thwarted he will do what he has purposed to do You want security and comfort? That's where you'll find it. Well, then how? If 
salvation is ultimately based upon the choice of God before the foundation of the world, based upon his sovereign will, then how has he brought it about? That's where we come to the finished work of God the Son. Verse 5. In love, he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This is the means by which you receive it. Through Jesus Christ. The means by which God transforms a rebellious, spiritually dead, spiritually depraved, immoral, wicked sinner like you and I once were, the means by which he saves us is through Jesus Christ. That's how somebody like what we were in our darkness and ignorance and wickedness can become what verse 4 describes us as holy and blameless before him. Or how we receive the adoption of sons that Paul refers to here. It's through the redemptive work of Christ. I want you to notice how many times in just these 14 verses that I read, you'll see that tiny little phrase, in Christ. In Christ. It's the most important phrase in all of Paul's theology and all of biblical theology. In Christ. It it shows up 10 times in these 14 verses, either directly by saying in Christ or in the beloved or in him. 10 times in 14 verses, he uses that phrase. 30 times he'll use it in the entire book of Ephesians. In Christ. It's a summary of all of Paul's theology. It's a summary of the New Testament as it explains all the symbolism of the Old Testament. In Christ. Now, I'm going to admit this is a flawed example, and it's very simplistic. And anytime you try to use a simplistic example to teach a profound theological truth, you know you're going to set yourself up for questions. But if I were to take this pen and say, this pen represents me, and I'm going to put it in this hymnal and say, this hymnal represents Christ, you can say, this pen is in this hymnal, just like I am in Christ. What that means is anything that happens to the hymnal also happens to the pen, And what that illustrates is anything that happens to Christ happens to me. And so, if the wrath of God is poured out upon Christ, and he dies to pay for sin, what happens to him happens to me. If Christ is raised from the dead, then I am raised in him. If if I want to be seen as righteous in the sight of God, the only way that I am going to be seen as righteous before the sight of God is if I am in Christ, if I am robed in his righteousness. That is the basis of my confidence in standing before a holy God. In verse 7, Paul says that the work of Christ is summarized as redemption through his blood. Through his blood. I'm dismayed that so few churches ever talk about the blood of Christ. Churches shy away from that teaching. They see it as primitive. Some old superstition. We've so intellectually developed these days. We're too smart to believe in the importance of the blood. But Paul says that that redemption that Christ accomplished is only through the blood of Christ. It's based on a foundational assumption of all of the scripture's revelation is that God is holy. God cannot look upon sin. God can't interact with sin. God must purge sin. He must punish sin. He must destroy sin. He hates sin. 
And the only just way to punish sin according to God's word is by our death. That our blood would be shed. That's the penalty of death. The wages of sin is the shedding of our blood by death. But when God chose his people in the Old Testament, he gave them a visual aid. He gave them the animal sacrifices to teach them to look for a greater sacrifice. And if you were a worshiper and you wanted to come into the presence of a holy God as a sinner, if you wanted to walk into the presence of God, there was only one way you could do it. You had to come to the temple, which represented the presence of God. And the priest, you would bring a perfect, flawless, blemishless ram or a goat or a lamb or a bull, and you would present it to the priest. And the priest would lay his hands on the animal, thereby transferring your sin to the animal. And then the worshiper himself, the sinner, would take that same animal and take a knife and cut its throat and kill it. And then the priest would take the blood from that animal and he would put it on the altar to demonstrate to God that the death of a substitute has been made. That blood has been shed. It deserved to be the blood of the sinner, the worshiper. But instead, a sacrifice, a substitute has died in his place. But then, the New Testament teaches us clearly, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, in these sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Only if this eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, only if this eternal son of God added to his divine nature, a human nature, lived among us, lived that perfect blemishless, blemishless life without any sin in thought, word, and deed, and then allowed himself, volunteered to allow his blood to be shed on the cross. Only the son of God and his blood could pay for the sins of all of God's people from every age, every era, every time. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. Redemption through his blood is used as an equivalent phrase for the forgiveness of our trespasses. The only way for all of your sins in thought, word, and deed to be forgiven is through the blood of Christ, the substitute, to be shed in your place. How do I bring this back to security? The basis of your salvation is in something outside of you. Something you had nothing to do with. The basis of your salvation is not in your choice. It's not in your actions. It's based in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is a solid basis for security for knowing that you are saved right now in this moment and you will continue to be saved until he perfects you and takes you into glory because it's based on the finished work of Christ. That's why Christ in John 10, I mean, once the Lord opens your eyes to this beautiful, profound, deep truth about what God has done, you start to see it everywhere in Scripture. 
It's, it's, almost like, it's almost as great as the joy of your salvation when you start to understand the gospel. It's, it's just a under, deeper understanding of the gospel. And look at, listen to it in what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 10. He says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Security. Confidence. Because you're in the hands of Christ. You're in the hands of the Father. He's never going to let you go. And that brings us to that inheritance. Mentioned that We are made holy and blameless in his sight, but we also are adopted as sons. We're adopted as sons and daughters, which means, as Paul goes on to say in verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. If you're a son or a daughter of God, then you are an heir of his kingdom. Remember, everything that happens to Christ happens to you. If Christ is an heir to his kingdom, you also share in his kingdom. You also inherit his kingdom. And that brings us to the spirit of adoption. And that's the final point here. Our security and confidence is guaranteed by God the Holy Spirit. God the Father chooses us before the foundation of the world based on his sovereign will alone. He sends his son to redeem us by shedding his blood on the cross and being raised from the dead. And then God the Son and God the Father send the Holy Spirit to finish the work, to complete what they started. And God always completes what he starts to do. He never fails. His plan is never thwarted. And so that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 13. Paul says, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That word sealed is important. The word seal in that day referred to something that everybody understood. It was a, some soft clay or, or wax that you would put on a, an important document, per, per se. And you put the, the clay or the wax on the document to, co- to, to close it, and then you put an insignia, like an official insignia, a, a logo, so to speak, of, of somebody really important, like a king or an official. And if they impressed that insignia into that clay or wax and closed the document with that, that said two things to people. First of all, that document belongs to that person. Whatever that document says, that's the word of that person. That document belongs to him. It's his word. Which reminds us of 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. But secondly, that seal also protected that document against tampering. If somebody, if a, a errand boy, somebody was sent to deliver this document to somebody else, If that seal was broken, you know that there's a good chance that that document was tampered with. That seal, when it's delivered, ensured that nobody had changed what the owner of that document, the writer of that document said. You knew that it was exactly his word and his his intention. And so the seal protected the document from tampering. The Holy Spirit does the same thing for the believer. The Holy Spirit marks the believer as belonging to God. And as a seal, the Holy Spirit ensures that no one can tamper with the work of God in our life until we are fully delivered. 
Think of the seal on Jesus' tomb. Pilate put a seal on that tomb to say, if that seal's broken, then you know somebody tampered with that tomb. Well, it was broken from inside out. I mean, it didn't, didn't even think about that possibility. Think about the seal in Revelation, the seven seals. There's a document in the hand of the one sitting on the throne. And we find out in subsequent chapters that that document lays out the plan of redemption, this master plan of God to bring grace and mercy and judgment upon the earth. But that seal, John weeps because that se- the seals aren't broken. No one is authorized to open the scroll because the seals aren't broken until Jesus Christ steps forward and says, I have authority to open the document, to break the seal and bring about the plan of God. And then later in Revelation, there's one more reference to the seal. Do you know what that is in Revelation? It's the seal that's put on the forehead of the elect. And that seal on the forehead of the elect says, God is about to pour out his judgment, but ultimately these will not be harmed. They belong to him, and they will remain in his hand until they are fully delivered. So the Holy Spirit is a seal marking us as belonging to God and ensuring that we will remain in his hand until we are fully delivered when Christ returns. And then one more thing Paul says about the Holy Spirit in verse 14. He says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory? That Greek word for guarantee is actually a word in our language would be more uh, uh, accurate, uh, give the right connotation to it, would be the word down payment, the first installment, the earnest payment, the deposit. It's what assures that the full payment will be given. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5, in that chapter, Paul is talking about our future full deliverance. Not just the perfection of our souls, but the perfection of our bodies. And that's really what he's focused on there in 2 Corinthians 5. Is that not just our souls will be made perfect when Christ returns, but we're going to receive resurrection bodies. And so he says in verses 4 and 5, we would, we would want to be further clothed with our resurrection body so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared this for who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Same word. He's sealed you, he's guaranteed you, he's given you a down payment of the Holy Spirit, which means he will fulfill his promise to give you all of your inheritance in the Spirit. And if you make a down payment on a house, when you buy a house, and you fail to make full payment, you're going to lose your down payment. I can't imagine God losing his Holy Spirit. That's impossible. He's given us his Holy Spirit. That means he will finish what he started. That's Philippians 1.6. He will complete what he began in you. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23 say, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Think about it. Those things are only the down payment. To the degree that you've experienced the fruit of the Spirit, it's only a down payment on what God has promised you in Christ and your inheritance. Romans 8, verses 15 to 17. 
speaking to you as believers. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If by faith you are in Christ, that inheritance is yours already. You already possess it. One day you'll fully possess it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher from England, once wrote a really important book called Spiritual Depression. And when I first saw it, I thought, well, that's weird. Martin Lloyd-Jones, why would he write a psychology textbook? Or why would he write a pop psychology book? That's not what spiritual depression is about, if you've read it. Basically, what spiritual depression as a book is about is preaching the gospel to yourself. Understanding the deep truths that, he, that Paul's talking about here in chapter 1 and applying it fully to the way you think, the way you feel, the way you interact with people, the way you live. What that book does is what Ephesians 1 does, which is it digs deep into the nuances of this mystery of God's will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It is a key to emotional and psychological health that you have a strong sense of security and confidence in life. You cannot live in fear. But you will not find that security and confidence in this world. You will not find it in your relationships. You're not going to find it in your bank account. You're not going to find it in your job. You're not going to find it anywhere in this world. You won't find it in yourself. Don't look deep within yourself to find it. It's only in the will of God, the Father, the redemptive work, the finished work of Christ, and the guarantee seal of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to close by reading question one of the Heidelberg Catechism. If you're familiar with this, this is probably one of the favorites of all the catechism questions and answers in the Reformed world. But you know, bear with me if you're, this is familiar to you. If you haven't heard it before, this is beautiful. And I think what this catechism question is trying to do is summarize everything that Ephesians 1 is about. Here's the question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Or I'd rephrase that. What is your only sense of security and confidence in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That was written back in the 1500s, and it's still just as true today. That's how to live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for truth. We live in a world that constantly questions the truth, but you've revealed it to us by your spirit and by your word. Help us to live by it. Help us to live as those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world by the sovereign will of a God who does all that he pleases. Help us to live as those who have been purchased by the precious blood of the God the Son who has died for us and taken our penalty completely.
all of our sins, past, present, and future, paid for at the cross. Help us to live as those who have the Holy Spirit with us and in us, assuring us, giving us that security and, and comfort and confidence that we need because of the gospel. And may that kind of attitude toward life, may that kind of confidence and boldness and courage in the face of all the fears of the circumstances of this world, may that be a light to draw people to Christ. For that is the only hope for this dark world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.